Oh, it's a busy one on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to hear from the day. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The sole policy, the number one policy of the, uh, of the Nazi regime, written down in Mein Kampf, um, Hitler's memoir in 1924, is the elimination of the Jews. That is the driving motivation of that political movement. So if you look, you know, at the top uh, 10% of the world's population in terms of income, we produce about 50% of global carbon emissions. Now, have you ever found yourself with a mysterious soggy bottom? I think I'll just leave that question hanging there for a second while you all wonder what it is I'm talking about. And we'll start with Morning Ireland and ahead of President Joe Biden's address of the Oireachtas, Ashling Maloney looked back at past speeches of Kennedy, Reagan and Clinton. This evening, President Biden will address a, do- a joint sitting of Doyle and Shannon, both houses of the Oireachtas together. And he's going to be the fourth US president to address them in this way. Our reporter Ashling Maloney has been looking back at previous speeches by US presidents in the Oireachtas. Speaker... Prime Minister, members of the Parliament, I am deeply honoured to be your guest in the free Parliament of a free island. If this nation had achieved its present political and economic stature a century or so ago, my great-grandfather might never have left New Ross, and I might, if fortunate, be sitting down there with you. The 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, addressed the Oireachtas in June 1963. The Taoiseach was Fianna Fáil's Sean Lamass. The President was US-born Eamon de Valera. Of course, if your own President had never left Brooklyn, he might be standing up here instead of me. President Kennedy was the first foreign leader to address both houses of the Oireachtas. And 60 years later, President Joe Biden will address the same chamber today. I am proud to be the first American President to visit Ireland during his term of office, proud to be addressing this distinguished assembly. In 1963, this was the first time television cameras were allowed to record in the Dáil Chamber, and it was packed, full of many political heavyweights, as well as the sitting 144 deputies and 60 senators, only four of whom were women. And so it is that our two nations, divided by distance, have been united by history. No people ever believed more deeply in the cause of Irish freedom than the people of the United States. JFK's speech celebrated the relatively new independent state of the Republic of Ireland. He included, too, his fair share of quotes from poets and writers like Yeats, Boyle O'Reilly and Bernard Shaw. Use the phrase of Yeats, let us not casually reduce that great past to a trouble of fools. For we need not feel the bitterness of the past to discover its meaning for the present and the future. Fast forward into the future, 21 years later, President Ronald Reagan came to town. One Irishman told me he thought I would fit in. Mr. President, he said, you love a good story, you love horses, you love politics, the accent we can work on. While his Oireachtas address was light on poetry, he strongly condemned the violence brought by the Troubles. I repeat today, there is no place for the crude, cowardly violence of terrorism. Not in Britain, not in Ireland, not in Northern Ireland. All sides should have one goal before them, and let us state it simply and directly, to end the violence, to end it completely, and to end it now. The terrorism, I'm not being overly optimistic when I say today that I believe you will work out a peaceful and democratic reconciliation of Ireland's two different traditions and communities. 
Eleven years after President Reagan, in pursuit of a lasting peace in Northern Ireland, President Bill Clinton addressed both houses of the Oireachtas in December 1995. I saw that the people want peace, and they will have it. George Bernard Shaw, with his wonderful Irish love of irony, said, peace is not only better than war, but infinitely more arduous. Ireland has hosted seven well, today, US presidents, but only three addressed our parliament. Clinton, and President Joe Biden, later today, will make that four. That is the tide of history. We must make sure that the tide runs strong here. For no people deserve the brightest future more than the Irish. God bless you, and thank you. Thank you again for this great honor, and God bless you all. My friends, Ireland's hour has come. You have something to give to the world, and that is a future of peace with freedom. Ashley Maloney remembering the Iraqis' speeches of three presidents past, Kennedy, Reagan and Clinton, from Morning Ireland. Then later, Donald McGill was talking to Philip Boucher Hayes about the president's visit to his bar and restaurant in Dundalk the night before. Last night, as you probably are well aware at this stage, distant relatives of Joe Biden gathered with him in the Windsor Bar on Dublin Street in Dundalk. I'm joined by the proprietor, Donald McGill. Good morning to you. Good morning, Philip. How are you? I'm very good, but how are you? Was it a bit of a late one last night, by any chance? It a little bit late, but it was funny. I was uh, I got home at about two o'clock last night, but um, it, the, I got the place cleared by about twelve, half twelve. Uh, I was just doing a few bits of tidying up and stuff like that at that stage, you know, and uh, made my way on home. Um, yeah, look, it was it was an amazing, amazing which, event. Which I which I gather included the unblocking of a toilet to to, to go yeah, from meeting the leader of the free world. Home, um, there was a toilet blocked at home, so that was my last job <laughs> before I got to bed last night. Was clear out the frigging toilet. But anyway, uh, these that, things uh, bring you back down to earth very quickly, I'd as you can imagine. Say it did. How much notice did you receive of the possibility of this happening, Donald? Well, that that was the thing. Uh, it was Monday afternoon. I, I a fellow called Brian McPartland from the White House staff made contact with me. He was in town and asked could he call in because we were closed on bank holiday Monday uh-huh. during the day. So I took him in, and at that stage it was still only look. There's a possibility that the president but, may but be. But hang, hang on a second. The, had there been a whiff of this before bank holiday Monday no, nothing, at all? N- nothing. Nothing. And I was talking to other guys in the you know like uh, Lee Marchbold uh, in the Garda station. They were only told about it on Sunday, you know, so the, 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 everything that had to be put in place that normally takes two to three weeks mm. uh, was being done in the space of a day or two days. And in our case, we were told on Monday that I was at, I told them that it, it was a possibility. Don't say anything to anybody because it may not happen. Uh, at least I'll, I'll confirm on Tuesday, you know. So <clears throat> even by four or five o'clock on Tuesday, I even though there was a lot of stuff happening and there was guys coming in and there was wiring being put in place and 
Johnny from Aircom was down trying to stick in a, a, a secure a, a broadband line for them and all this stuff was still going on I still couldn't say for definite that he was coming and this is you know 12, 14 hours away from the actual and event come here, did, so you, did you have to did you have to then sort of keep the, all of this to yourself while ordering in extra sausage rolls and making sure that oh, you that, weren't going to run dry well, you know what the sausage roll end of things thankfully uh, food wasn't, wasn't an issue at all because other than uh, I brought in Max the Ukrainian chef that day to cook food for the, for the guys that were working and the security and the, all those people that put the technical stuff in place we weren't doing food we weren't going to be feeding anybody that night it was basically when, when uh, President uh, Biden would arrive and make a speech it was meat and grease and photographs it, we weren't feeding anybody so that, that, I didn't have to worry okay. about that end come, of come here though Donald did, did, yeah. did Max the Ukrainian chef get to meet the President? You better believe it. That was that was the best moment uh, of of the occasion. Next to him meeting me mother, because all my staff were the, the staff that were working that day stayed on, and they were all standing behind the counter, hoping to just to maybe get shaking his hand. And as he as uh, President Biden made his way past the counter, Max leaned across. It was almost one of those security moments where we thought someone was going to get uh, shot because uh. he leaned across and sort of grabbed his hand, and. But as soon as he said, I'm Max, Ukrainian, Joe stopped in his tracks and made his way around and got in behind the counter. So all my staff got to shuffle along with him for the next 10 minutes as he shook hands and continued on his way. Uh, and all of Ukraine know about this at this stage because Max has been on to his crying mother and the whole lot. It's, it was a wonderful moment for, for, for Max and other Ukrainian workers I've worked here with me. They're, they're, they're great. And tell... Tell me about the connection that he made with your mum. Oh, well, I have to say, this was, uh, it was spectacular because obviously we have a little snug bar at the front and that was the uh, entrance for Joe and would be the exit later on. That was a sort of a secure area. And that's where uh, President Biden's uh, the Carney relatives and Finnegan relatives would be awaiting to greet him as well as myself, my son, Sebastian, and my mother. So he walked in the door and I just thought that I was going to shake his hand and introduce him to me mother. But when he saw me mother, he kind of just went straight for her as in, this is the most important person in the room. I'm going to her first. And he embraced me mother and they talked like a brother and sister would meeting at a wedding. It was, they just had this lovely brief little, hello, you're welcome, delighted to be here. And then... Uh, you know, I got to mention that, you know, Mam's a mother of 10 kids and she has 37 grandchildren and 17 great-grandchildren, at which Joe Biden was just, he was in awe. And he went on to praise mothers, my mother and probably all mothers, you know, that, that they are the cornerstones of families and it should be they that get the presents when children are celebrating uh, uh, birthdays, all that sort of stuff. And then my mother just uh, mentioned that uh, my dad, who passed away two years ago, ah, here I go again, and um, that he would have loved to have been there. So at that moment, uh, Joe mentioned that obviously his wife had passed away too. And then they embraced like two, like a brother and sister, only this time at a wake rather than a wedding. And it was a, just a beautiful moment for the pair of them. And then later on in the evening, as President Biden, having gone through the pub and shaken hands and, and all that, as he was making his way out, my mum was still sitting in the same wee chair up at the front because she's 89 or will be 89 shortly. And he darted back over to her and had another little moment where they wished each other a very safe journey and she got the peck in the cheek and 
it was just it was it was really a moment was, of genuine a, human a moment connection. Genu- and I just hope Dad upstairs is. I bet you he is. I bet you he is, Donald. Donald McGill talking to Philip Badger Hayes in the morning. And on the live line, selling German war memorabilia. Katie Hannan was in for Joe. Now, on Saturday, this Saturday coming, an Irish auction house will be selling off two items. A compass bearing a swastika, which is dated July 1944, a very significant date for an item bearing a swastika, and a death mask of a face which is described as that of a German military leader. Um, The face bears a striking resemblance to a certain Adolf Hitler. Uh, I want to go to Oliver now. Oliver, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Katie. Yes, Oliver, you're you're an art dealer yourself. Um, you're horrified by this. Uh, I'm I'm horrified as an art dealer, but I'm also holo- uh, I'm more horrified because I'm the founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. My mother is a Holocaust survivor. And I'm also speaking on behalf of the Jewish Representative Council of Ireland. So I'm speaking on this subject for the Jewish community. So um, there, are, there are a number of reasons why I'm horrified. Talk to me about the, the, the items in question. I mean, they're obviously what we would describe as Nazi memorabilia. Um, these items do come up for sale from time to time. Is there any circumstances in which you believe it would be acceptable to trade in these? Um, Absolutely none. And in um, many countries, including Germany and France, uh, it's actually illegal. So um, there's no reason at all to be making money out of objects that are representative of, of, you know, the the most evil regime that uh, we've experienced in modern history. And particularly when we think about survivors like my mother, for example, who who is still alive. I just think it's completely immoral. It's tasteless. On top of that, if you look at the estimates, they're tiny. This auction house is likely, if it's lucky, to make something like 50 euros in commission. Why would you bother? It's it's extraordinary. Back to the items themselves. Um, so the death mask um, is, you know, it's disingenuous that it's catalogued as the death mask of a German military leader. It is absolutely, obviously, Adolf Hitler. You have a, um, a toothbrush moustache. It's not Charlie Chaplin. We don't need but, but a... Presumably, though, just to be clear, there's probably uh, commercial and legal reasons why you can't definitively say who that is. Would that not be the reason that you're no, kind of listed I, I, in that I, way? I, absolutely not. That's nonsense. That's, uh, there's absolutely no reason other than possibly a, a fear of pu- uh, putting off a, a clientele by by actually printing the name Adolf Hitler in, in the catalogue. But it's completely illogical because the compass has a swastika on it. So I, I don't know what the thinking of the auction house is, but it has nothing to do with a legal standing. The compass, and I know, I know that you you reached out to the uh, auction house. We did, we did as well as Matthew's auction house, who were selling these items on Saturday. Uh, we spoke to the auctioneer ourselves as well. 
he doesn't want to come on our programme today. We did invite him. If he's listening out there now, we'd invite him again. We would love to hear uh, what your view on this is and why you chose to um, sell these items. This comes up from time to time, um, Oliver. I mean, there are people who will say it's better not to forget that, that you know, these this memorabilia is about remembering for you no, know, a, a really I, horrific uh, time in our in our fairly recent history. But, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that's nonsense. It's about making money. There are museums just filled to the brim of with Nazi memorabilia. Uh, I always um, t- tend to um, lean on the side of caution as far as um, making sure that an expert in Nazi memorabilia has a good look at these items just in case um, there is a possibility that there's something extremely rare and of um, historical importance. But uh, much of this stuff was mass-produced. And frankly, if you are that concerned that this history should be forgotten, then donate them to a museum. And Oliver spoke specifically about the items being sold. If you look at the compass, for instance, the date is actually the 20th of July, 1944. Now, that date is, is specific to uh, one particular uh, incident, and that is the failed assassination plot by Klaus von Stauffenberg on Hitler. So that's almost certainly why that compass is engraved with that date. But that date makes, that's, that's if you like, a, a date that would be significant to a Nazi supporter. To, um, to my lot, we have a different view. I look at that date and I, I think of the end of an eight-week killing spree at Auschwitz when 437,000 Hungarian Jews were deported from Hungary to Auschwitz and gassed. That's 8,000 people every day for eight weeks. So put, put, put it into this perspective. The Troubles killed something like 3,600 people were murdered over a 30-year period. And think about the trauma intergenerationally that that has caused. It is unthinkable. It is unthinkable. There's no two ways about it. It is unthinkable. That object, both those objects, connect me to that past, connect me, connect this community to that past. What I'm trying to do is bring awareness of the Holocaust to the society I live in. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just trying to make people think about what they're doing in relation, well, to all sorts of things, but to collecting this stuff and certainly trading in it. And then Wolfgang, who's based now in Ireland, called Katie. For me, those items don't seem to be connected or linked directly to the Holocaust. Um, the Third Reich, there was a lot to the Third Reich, not only the Holocaust, which, which Holocaust, which of course was a major part, but I think there's a lot of people out there who are just interested in the military aspect of the Third Reich, of that dark chapter in European history. And as Oliver said, we do not know who, who those collectors are, what reason they're collecting those items for. 
And I do not believe that this is a fundraising um, opportunity because, as Oliver was saying, the auctioneer makes 50 euro on an item or something like that. I mean, not many funds are collected. Maybe on these items, they're not that valuable items in in the overall scheme of things, Wolfgang. But we know that there is a very lucrative trade in Nazi memorabilia worldwide in a global scale. So there is no doubt, but there is money to be made and there's books to be turned on this. Absolutely. And and is that that okay? Well, for, for myself, as far as I'm concerned, people can collect what they want as long as they don't uh, glorify uh, this chapter um, of, of history. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who have many different reasons to be interested in, in these items. But Wolfgang, can I put you, like, how do you not glorify or how do you separate out the military history of that period from the devastating, devastating human history that we, we, we are aware of? Like you, you, surely one comes with the other and can't be can't be separated. Well, you see, I'm not personally very interested in, in military history, but I do know a lot of people in Ireland, but also in the United States, who are extremely interested in this part of history, and um, they they seem to be. You know, they seem to be scrutinizing every move of the different um, military activities that were going on at the time. You know, these are things we probably just don't understand. And, and those items, are they really linked to the, to the Holocaust as such? Well, it's, it's, an, it's they... a Nazi compass with the 20th of July 1944. That's, as, as, as Oliver pointed out, very significant date for, for, for a, lot of, a lot of people who would have survived that Holocaust. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that one, no, to be honest. Uh, so, you, so your point, I think, if, I, if I've got you right, Wolfgang, is that just because you collect this, it doesn't mean that you condone the stories behind it. No, I, it would be interesting to actually talk to the people who, who buy these items. I mean, are they sitting in a shrine full of Nazi memorabilia or do they collect uh, different items from different um, parts of our history? Okay, maybe I'll let Oliver uh, respond to that. Oliver, if you're if you're still on the line. Sure. Um, so um, pe- pe- there are people who sit in shrines. There are people who think that they are just collecting innocently. But there is one point that I do need to to make where Wolfgang, I, I think, is slightly mistaken. The the, the sole policy. The number one policy of the, uh, of the Nazi regime, written down in Mein Kampf, um, Hitler's memoir in 1924, is the elimination of the Jews. That is the driving motivation of that political movement. So any military um, action or um, uh, activity that happens uh, in that period is linked, w- whether we like it or not, to carrying out that policy. So I, I think it is rather easy to say, to, to divorce the two, to say, okay, well, the Wehrmacht, the, the, um, the German army isn't the SS. Well, um, that, that's convenient. It's not, when, when you look at it and examine the history, 
it's very easy to make the link between the two. Well, that's Oliver there. Then Paul called Katie about his collection of militaria. It's one of those things that people who I say I came into it very similar to Graham. I inherited bits and pieces from my grandfather who fought in the British at Arnhem. Um, he was in the he was in the Second World War, and I got some pieces that way. But as Oliver was saying, um, one thing people are mis- mistaken: it's not illegal to sell it in Germany. But some of the biggest auction houses in the world are in Germany. Um, one I can name them quite openly: Hermann Historica. They've been running for years. Um, another big dealer in Germany, Helmut Weitz in Hamburg. I mean, he has a huge team of people working for him, people that speak multilingual languages and everything else because of the trade in it is so big. It's a multi-million pound so, industry. OK, let me, let me just clarify that then. So what is the legal status of, of sales? Oliver? Germany, you are not allowed, you couldn't say open a shop and have the medals in a window. The swastikas have to be have to be covered up. And a lot of these dealers that go from fairs to fairs in Europe, there would be military fairs that would sell not just Nazi memorabilia, but also Allied memorabilia as well. But they generally have to place a, a sticker, a thumb sticker over the swastika to cover it. But, like, the other thing also is, as far as I know, this is a strange one, it can't be, it can be exported out of Germany, but it can't be imported into Germany. And it's the same in France. Um, They have, there's auction houses there, they have military fairs, where there'd be thousands of people at these fairs. I mean, there's one in Belgium, Cine. I mean, it's a huge, huge fair. It, It runs, say, three or four times a year and you would have thousands of guys go to that and it would be everything on sale from Nazi memorabilia to Allied military, you know, it's, so, it's still so a very, but as can, Oliver said, it is, it is a big, huge, it's a very big business. Okay, can I just ask you though, have you ever bought sure. an item of Nazi memorabilia? Well, it depends what you class as Nazi memorabilia. As Oliver said, there is the two sections. You see, I, like Mein Kampf would be a very, to me, would be a very nasty piece of military, but a piece of equipment say a pilot would have worn flying over the channel or in a plane, I don't class that as being actually nasty because it doesn't have a swastika on it. But it is still from that era of history. It's still from that, that dark era of history. That's Paul on the live line with Katie Hannon. And in the morning, yes, Bill About Your Haze was really asking you this question. Now, have you ever found yourself with a mysterious soggy bottom? I think I'll just leave that question hang there for a second while you all wonder what it is I'm talking about. Or a sunken sponge. Or what about a cake that's burnt and smoking on top but raw in the middle. All of the above are common mistakes that bakers make. But fear not, because joining me in studio to go through the common mistake bakers can fall victim to and how to avoid or fix them is Anne-Marie Dunn, who teaches bakery at the School of Culinary Arts and Food Technology at the Technological University of Dublin. Cahill Brewer Street was much easier, wasn't it? It was. It was a simple, simple term. CBS. Everybody knew where it was. Everybody knew, but you are now the teacher of bakery at the School of Culinary Arts and Food Technology at the Technological University of Dublin. Okay, let us start with meringues, as you have brought in some lovely pavlova there. Um, It is still the subject of lore in the Boucher Hayes household, uh, how bad dad is at this and how long he will keep on whipping away when everybody else with any sense would have given up all (laughs) hope of ever getting the egg whites to rise. What am I doing wrong? What is everybody doing wrong when they have a go at this? I think the fundamental point, the, the main mistake people make, the one thing with meringues and anything where you're whipping up eggs, 
at all is have all your, your utensils grease free. That's number one rule. So make sure you scald out your bowl. If you've whipped cream earlier in a bowl, make sure it's scalded out well with hot, soapy water, clean and dry. And that's number one step okay, to so success. The, the chemistry there so is the that chemistry, any fat... Any fat will break down the protein of egg white. Really? Okay. So that is usually the number one fault. The second most common fault so is... You're trying to tell me that we don't wash our utensils properly. Well, so just to make sure it's grease free. But as well as that, which people don't realise, there's very small amount of fat in egg yolk. So the next most common mistake is when they're separating the eggs. Okay. So I always use three bowls when I'm separating eggs. Three? Yes. I always will have a collection bowl. Because if your recipe requires four or six egg whites, it's usually the sixth one that will crack and the little bit of egg yolk will escape into your five other egg okay. whites and so what that everybody sixth egg does is, is, is a write off as far as you're concerned. So that's right off. So if you do it in separate bowls, you have a collection bowl for your egg whites. So every time you separate one egg white successfully, you put it into your collection bowl and you put your egg yolks aside. Okay. And that way then your if one should crack you can use your egg for a scrambled egg or something. But what you do not do is, is try... stick a teaspoon in to try and, and take the egg yolk out. a little bit of egg yolk out. Because that's where the most common mistake is made. That little bit of egg yolk is enough to break down the protein of the egg white, which will not allow it to trap in the air. And that's the science behind it, that fat okay. will break the protein of the egg white down. Now, there is another bit of science that you can bring to this, isn't there, with a little bit of lemon juice? A little bit of lemon juice. So acidifying your egg whites will strengthen the egg whites as well. So that'll allow more air to be trapped in. So with meringue, it's all about getting your volume in. The sugar will stabilise the egg white and that will give the sweetness and also that will, will eventually make your meringue. If you just whip up egg whites to get air into it, it won't stay stabilised. It'll just be a frothy mass that will break back down into a... Um, into sort of its white itself again if you leave it to one side. But if you add the sugar to it, the sugar sort of liquefies and it holds and stabilises the egg white. But during the, the whipping stage, that's when the egg white traps in all of that lovely air and it increases in volume hugely okay. and then that, that stabilises. If you are, in my opinion, unnecessarily storing your eggs in the fridge, are you on a bit of a hiding to nothing with, with eggs that aren't room temperature? Always when baking, have your ingredients at room temperature, unless it specifies otherwise. The only other thing I will have a time I will chill things is probably butter for making pastry to try and keep my pastry cool. Okay. But when would, you're, you, would you include milk in that that's come out of the uh, Not really, because usually milk, when you're adding to it, is such a small amount. Mm. Um, you wouldn't keep, because milk obviously will go off. So when it comes to Don't eggs, go putting milk in your meringues. We're getting a bit confused no, here. No, no, no. So basically... Um, I always keep my eggs out of the fridge. I never store them in the fridge. I know that's another taboo subject with people. I keep my eggs at room temperature. I probably use them that quickly. They're not hanging around long enough to go off. The other thing is, don't use really fresh eggs. As eggs stale or get a little bit older, um, they actually become more acidified. So that's why you will find in recipes containing egg white, you might say a pinch of cream of tartar, which is an acid, a little bit of lemon juice or a little bit of vinegar. And that will strengthen the egg white it will allow it to be more stable when you add the sugar in it'll hold much better and it'll make a much firmer that meringue that is very very interesting yeah. so fresh is not and always best you will often find um, bakers 
particularly professional bakers, will often, um, to ensure that their utensils and their bowls are grease-free, they'll just cut a half a lemon, wipe out their bowl, which will actually cut the grease from the side of the bowl. Anne-Marie Dunn talking to Bill about your haze in the morning. Another Ryan Tuberty show turning trauma into a powerful debut novel. Charlene Hurtabees was talking to Ryan about her life, her mother and the book The Polite Act of Drowning. First of all, the American accent will get out of the way in the sense that um, <laughs> where, why, who. So when did you come to Ireland and why? So I arrived in Ireland around uh, 1996 and I had finished um, my teaching degree and I just came um, with my friend and we just made our way around Ireland visiting and um, yeah, so just for a holiday, started off with a holiday, just for a break. Yes. And you did a bit of hitchhiking. Did a bit of hitchhiking and um, yeah, so we were poor college students and we, I was here first for a few weeks and then my friend who actually is in town at the minute um, joined me um, and we left Shannon Airport and got into the first car that picked us up and who happened to have a sheath of knives in his council. Knives. <laughs> knives. And Beautiful. So yeah, so you know how you are, young women um, just going. Two hmm. young women in a truck with a, with a selection of knives. <laughs> a selection of knives. Keep, keep going. <laughs> and, uh, where to next from Yeah, here? where to next from here. Um, so anyway, basically he, he kind of see, he looked at me looking at them and he said, oh, it's okay, I'm a butcher. So we're like, oh yeah, it's okay, he's a butcher. <laughs> so it was okay. So it started and it just got better because because then my husband's sister ended up picking us up and... Um, Randomly, you'd never met your husband at this point. Never met my husband. So this woman... Yeah, so we were out next. hitchhiking. It was pouring rain. We were... Um, my So they were heading out to Westport and I we, we were just being polite. We looked on the map and we said, uh, we'll go to... Uh, Castle Bar. And they're like, you don't want to go to Castle Bar. Sorry, Castle Bar. Yeah. So somebody was very <laughs> going r- to cruel Westport. about Castle so, Bar. So, yeah. And then we ended up meeting my husband out there. And so eventually. You're, you're, this woman collects you and says, you want to go to Westport. She brings you to Westport. Yeah. And she's, how did she say, oh, you must meet my brother? Oh, so her brother just ended up on the scene. So they they were a bunch of Dubliners kind of in Westport for the weekend. And um, one of the guys gave us a place to stay out there. We we're staying in a caravan in the wilds of Mayo. And um, and yeah, uh, so my husband was one of the people who arrived at um, over the course of the week. It was what's that week in August where everybody climbs Crow Patrick? Oh yeah, okay. So yeah. it was that that particular time. It was of the that year particular time of gathering. the year. So all the Dubliners were coming down, and I met my husband, and he was a lovely fella, um, very quiet, very shy, and so I we just kept moving, and then I ended up back with him in Dublin. And he kind of grew on me, so. So it seems. Yeah, uh, so it did, seems. Did you go back to the States to wrap things up there or did you just. So I was here, I got a, a work visa. So I was here for four to six months. And my plan was to work a little bit here, go on to Spain. And I never went to Spain. Never got to my Spain. friend went home and yeah. I was left on my own. So I I came here to, um, you know, uh yeah, I just yeah. came here, hung out with the Dubliners and Connor, like I said, grew on me. And you never so. said goodbye to mm, Ireland. No, oh, I did go home. I did go home eventually, um, I think around Christmas time. And then we just made plans. We just kind of knew that we'd have to Kept be it together. So yeah, thank exactly. God for the for the man uh, with the knives, uh, <laughs> because he drove you to your destiny. Yeah, exactly. The butcher. The butcher. <laughs> Who knew? So back to the book, The Polite Act of Drowning. So it's a coming-of-age novel set in Michigan amidst the Great Lakes. And um, it's the protagonist is Joanne. She's a teenage girl, 16 years old. Mm. And um, 
a drowning happens in the town and it shocks the town. Um, but the water settled quickly for most. But for the Kennedy family, Joanne's family, it dredges up secrets. Um, so secrets that have come to the surface. So it's about generational trauma, um, mental illness, um, and really just uh, Joanne, this this teenage girl navigating through small town American life um, amidst the troubles that uh, she's facing in a very dysfunctional family. It, 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 it's intriguing how in the, that short few sentences you gave there, Charlene, you, you mentioned about four different words that are metaphors used with the lake about dredging up secrets, coming yes. to the surface, yeah. uh, navigation. Um, it, it, it is the water has that effect, doesn't it? I mean, it does. people yeah. are so attracted, whether it's the lake or the sea. It's, it's alluring, but it's also terrifying. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so tell me why you, you describe it as a polite act. Um, well, that is kind of revealed at the end of the novel. Which we um, don't want to give too much away. Yeah, but exactly. Yes. But there's still, um, so the the, par- the parallel is that it's um, women drowning in their everyday life. So yeah. one of the, um, I was already writing about this girl with um, facing, uh, you know, the struggles that sure. she was facing in a dysfunctional family. Um, and then I came across in a, in a, for another reason, I came across a quote by um, a, an article by Mario Vittoni. He's an ex-Marine in um, Florida. And he said in this article about drowning, um, drowning isn't the violent splashing call for help that most people expect. Drowning is almost always a deceptively quiet event and just something triggered. I thought, that's it. That's mental illness. That's exactly mental illness. That's women drowning in their everyday lives. Um you know, the, the, a deceptively quiet event where, you know, the suffering and the struggling, um, you might look perfectly happy, yeah. uh, but you're not. There's a lot going on under the surface. And I just saw a lot of parallels between that and You're describing water. The, the swan, mm. aren't you? Uh, mm. uh, gliding so gracefully on the surface, but underneath... Yeah. Crazy, paddling, crazy, paddling, just to stay alive and Absolutely. to stay well and to to yeah. mind the babies and yes. uh, you know just yeah. keep going. But on the face yeah. of it, as you say, it, it's all so beautiful. Yeah. Um, let's go back a few steps to to your your mother. She had a complicated uh, life. Uh, there's no doubt yeah. about it. And yeah. no one likes to think to look back in their life yeah. uh, at the, the the negative because mm. you, you could drag yourself down. But at the same time, you're very honest about about her because, yeah. like so often in in life, it's not the person's fault. That mm-hmm. it was that it was all yeah. difficult. Yes. Yeah. So, will you talk Absolutely. to me a little bit about your mum and yeah. tell us her name and, and yeah. her, her background. name was also Charlene. Lovely. <laughs> and it was very important to me that her name was E N E and mine was E E N. It was yeah. the only way to differentiate us. Yeah. And actually, she so people would call the house and say, um, "Is Charlene there?" And they'd say, "Little Charlene or Big Charlene?" Yeah. And I'd be mortified getting on the phone. Yeah, they'd of course. Say, Hi, little Charlene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so Charlene. So Charlene Senior. Charlene Senior. Uh, it was my mother and, you know, absolutely lovely woman, um, very together, um, you know, very beautiful, uh, um, um, you know, quite amazing woman for mm-hmm. all that she did was mm-hmm. so very little. And for the most part, you know, we didn't know, um, uh, you know, I only heard about tales of her childhood through other cousins or through aunts or uh, sisters. And um, so she really kind of had the appearance of having it all together. Um, but she grew up in a very, very dysfunctional, uh, very, um, they were neglected as children. There was They're alcohol in the Alcohol, family, yeah. 
Um, they were, you know, their parents, when they were alive, they would leave them five children on their own um, to look after each other. Uh, they'd have to go to the neighbours for food, um, do you know. And then eventually the fa- uh, her father passed away and they were put into foster care. Mm. And in foster care, she had just a horrendous, horrendous time. And eventually she met up with her Aunt Mary. She was taken into foster care. She was removed from a farm. They used to send them up to farms, you see. Yeah. And um, they, you know, kind of did some work. So there are a ton of children at these farms. Um, and then some other tragic events happened and then she finally was, they were separated from their siblings, uh, sadly. And then, um, she was, uh, brought up by her Aunt Mary. She used to call her Aunt Mary, who was a really, really important figure in her life, a very religious woman, um, and, you know, she really kind of set my mom on the path that she set out, um, on it. She met my dad, my dad, um. (laughs) <laughs> was, uh, you know, very funny sense of humor, but my mom was the driver, okay. you know, like she was definitely the driver. And, um, but yeah, she was, so she was a very, uh, very, her Catholic religion was very, very important to her. Um, that I think got her through everything, her faith. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was a really chaotic household. We had nine children, eight of us girls and one boy. The boy was the baby. <laughs> was he Was he lionised as the, the great prince uh, <laughs> as a matter of interest? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Loveliest fella that you'd ever meet. Yeah. Kindest, kindest boy. Uh, but most definitely was like, imagine a pillow and Larry being carried around on the pillow. <laughs> I think every family been... <laughs> has a bit of that going on. Yeah, Go on. <laughs> I would have loved to have been the boy. I, I always imagine what my life would have been like yeah, had yeah, I been yeah, the boy. Yeah. I was number six, you see. So yeah. there was a few more before he arrived. But you got but your mum's name. The others didn't I, that. Well, yeah. that was apparently, I, and that was something all my life I wish I didn't like that. I oh, didn't, you didn't want Because I didn't that. have that identity. I wanted it my own identity. And Charlene spoke about her mother's personality. She was, um, I, I don't think difficult. To, she was Fair very word. removed. Removed. She was what does that mean? Removed. Um, do you know, we didn't connect with her. Uh, we used to call her the Victorian. Everything was, she was very rigid. You know, you went to church. Victorian's a great you, name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very polite way it of saying, way. you know, the ice queen, you know, oh. uh, forgive me for, yeah. but you no, know what I mean? No, 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 yeah. The Victorian is, it, it, there's no hugging. Yeah, uh, yeah. In Victorian. Um, but that's the funny thing. There was, you know, she, I remember she used to take us kind of, um, you know, there was lots, of, you know, there were lots of I love yous, lots of hugs, um, you know, she, it, it's so such why a were we calling her the Victorian thing. then if she was doing that? So, the, you know, her morals. We, I think my mom had this dream that she would have these children and we would all line up for mass and we'd all be beautifully looked after. The Von Traps. go to mass, yeah. the Von Traps, yeah. and we'd all behave ourselves and we'd sit in our pew and say yes and no. And I... Um, that's not how teenagers work. That's not how children <laughs> no, work. Said, no, no, you can never. D- if you, you what, what a fool would try to legislate for teenagers, for teenagers you know, because yes. they, they are magnificent, yeah. but they also are trying to yeah. find their way. So I, I but, would never diss yeah. them. But yes, yeah, yes. But I think because she had this um, this idea that, you know, she she was so appreciative for what she had and she was so um you know, she was so well behaved and church saved her. And, you know, I just think she had this idea that if you had the right mother, if you had the right person looking after you, if you had the clean house, um, your children will behave. Charlene Hurtabees from The Ryan to Birdie Show. 
And on the Today programme, Philip Etcher Hayes was looking at the issues around world population. Now, the long feared and predicted world population bomb may not go off after all. The number of humans on Earth reached 8 billion in November of last year. But now a report suggests that the global population may peak at just 9 billion by 2050, a number far lower than previously thought. I'm joined now by Porik Carmody, Trinity College Dublin Professor of Geography, to tease out the implications of this. Good morning to you, Porik. Hi, Philip. How are you? Can you tell us first, please, before this report came along, what conventional thinking suggested was going to happen to population by 2050 and then by the end of the century? So the UN estimates suggested population would peak around 10 billion towards the middle of the century and then gradually start to decline after that. But what they've done in this report is they have modelled the economic development factors that affect population and that gives a a lower number. And what are the economic development factors? So the way that the UN um, estimated previously was basically they looked at prior kind of population trends and then push those forward into the future. But economic development is happening around the world. In On aggregate, humanity is getting richer. Some places are getting poorer, of course. But in, in the aggregate, we're getting richer as a species. And that means uh, a couple of things. As we urbanise, people have less demand for children. Um, they, they don't use them to harvest crops in the fields, etc. Children become an expense when you live in a city, more than a source of income, so people have fewer children. So where originally we were thinking 10 billion by 2060, when you take these economic factors into consideration, where are we going to end up? So the report actually has two scenarios. So there's one which is called too little, too late, which is basically our current kind of trajectory. And they say if we do too little too late, then we're still going to end up with regional ecosystem collapses, severe climate disruption and so on. And then they have a second scenario that they call giant leap. And that's more aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And it talks about the need to transition rapidly to clean energy and those kinds of things. And it's important to say that the report says that population is not the main issue. It's actually, in terms of environmental degradation, it's overconsumption, which is the main issue. So if you look, you know, at the top uh, 10% of the world's population in terms of income, we produce about 50% of global carbon emissions. So it's actually uh, inequality, they say, um, poverty and women's empowerment and other factors which are really key in terms of reducing our environmental impact. Population is part of the issue, but it, it, it tends to be attract excessive focus because it's something, I think, that can kind of be externalised mm. oftentimes from the, the rich countries. You know, it's, it's not us, it's people having too many children in Africa or India. Uh, it's not our consumption patterns which are really kind of, so, you know, so this, re- havoc. this report is not a get-out-of-jail card free then because... 6 billion people consuming as much as each other in the developed world 
uh, is a recipe for all kinds of disaster that might not necessarily exactly. have been the case with 10 billion people and the poorer exactly. half consuming considerably less. Exactly. So and this is part of the, the reasoning for including those economic development factors in the report, that you know population growth is more a symptom. It's a symptom of poverty. It's a symptom of inequality. And if we can redress and alleviate and reduce poverty and inequality, then we'll actually be able to reduce population more effectively. So we're into a kind of win-win scenario. I've yeah. seen so many different reports that say that the single biggest impact that you could have on diminishing pressure on the world's resources is to educate women and to give women the access to family planning in the countries where they don't have it. Is, is that still the case now, do you think? So the report actually gets into that and it says education obviously is a good thing in its own right. It's good if people can read and write and you know be aware of their rights and things like that. But it's also, it also talks about the structure of the labour market. So education in and of itself doesn't get people jobs. You have to actually have a labour market which demands those skills. So educating women has some impact by itself, but the report talks about the fact that it's really the bigger kind of structural changes to economies and education is a part of that and feeds into it. But in and of itself, again, it's not a kind of silver bullet. All of these things are are interlinked and interact. Rory Carmody, Professor of Geography at Trinity College with Philip Outer Hayes. And in the afternoon, Catherine Thomas was talking to builder Peter Finn and new presenter and designer Dee Coleman about the new series of Home Rescue. Now joining me in studio is designer Dee Coleman and builder Peter Finn. They are the new TV duo. They've teamed up for the latest series of Home Rescue, The Big Fix, which kicks off tonight, 9.30 on RTE2. You're both very welcome. Great to see you. Thanks, Catherine. Peter, I know you, so I'm going to start with Dee. Um, Peter, that's been happening since this started. Well, this is is six seasons, so this is is your baby. Like, you've been on this a while, and... um, I, I always, when I watch it, I can always really get the passion yeah. that you, you feel real passion for this show and, and it, like, it means a, a lot to you. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a great show. It's a real feel-good factor show. So um, I've been doing it for quite a while now, but um, the energy is still there and uh, Dee obviously brought new energy to the, to the show this year. So, you know, it's been a great season, actually. Really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, so Dee, how did you find it? How, how did you find stepping in? Because it was, was that your first kind yeah. of foray into TV? I had never done anything on TV. I'm not even someone who likes taking selfies. So okay. it was <laughs> it was a sort of a bizarre segue for me to undertake. So how did it come <laughs> about for you? Well, I'm a member of the Interiors Association, which is the professional body for interior designers. And they sent out an email saying, Coca Content, who make the show, we're looking for uh, someone in, with interiors experience to join the programme. I thought, I wonder what this entails. So I typed in my application and then the next thing I'm getting calls from the producer, Jane, who's very persistent. Yeah, she <laughs> and I wasn't actually sure I even wanted to do it. I have my own full-time practice. I have two kids who are only 10 years old. I have, you know, busy life. Yeah, doing my own yeah. house at the moment. You know how oh, it is. Oh, wow, okay. So it's a bit manic as... But, you know, these things don't come your way very often. And I did a screen test and that's what solidified it for me because I realised that all I had to do was my job and pretend the cameras weren't there. And did you screen test with himself? At the end, the okay. tail end. Yeah, I don't think he was convinced, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you did okay. <laughs> but I mean, it's fair to say, Peter, we're going to talk about you like you're not here for a oh, few yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's us Because from himself, he's no wallflower. No, 
He so, really isn't. I'm a pushover. So, oh, <laughs> but I mean, everyone has to have their own opinion. I yes. mean, as a, and it's not yeah. always builders and designers will see eye to eye, but there has no. to be a meeting in the middle. But I got to watch the show. Um, I watched it this morning. And there is a great rapport. There's a great energy between you, I have to say. Well, I have been doing this a very long time, even though it's like my second career design. But I've been doing it a long time. So I do have strong views. And whilst I absolutely respect Pete and his experience and... What he knows about TV as well, actually, is very helpful. But I did find that when it came to expressing my opinion on design, I wasn't at all intimidated. OK, yeah. OK. So let's talk about the show. We've got six houses this year. What can we expect? Um, it's the, the one tonight. It's it's a beautiful story. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, look, I, the one tonight is a, is, is a really good story, definitely. And it just gets stronger and stronger as, as, the, as the series goes on, being honest with you. And the thing I love about Home Rescue is pretty much every episode every show every job that we do is completely different mm. it's different design it's different rooms obviously different situations in people's lives so yeah we've got some really exciting stuff in, across the whole series and we start off um, out in Ballybrack is is, uh, is our yeah. first one tonight you Luke know? So and Amy Luke and Amy yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I always love because you're kind of given five days to mm-hmm. do each house mm. that's the time frame and it is that It's not, that's not just TV time no, that no. is how it runs so <laughs> I yeah. always get that sense of stress. Well, I always get the sense of stress from you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> You're there morning, noon, and night. It's two o'clock in the morning, and you still have so the drill. Have you you still have the drill in your hand. <laughs> but um, I mean, why? Why? Obviously, you have to have that time frame to allow the, the people whose house it is in and out. You mm. have to have it for shooting schedule, mm-hmm. but you yeah. also have to have a time frame. But it is a tight time frame. Yeah, it's very tight, and I suppose that's what causes the most stresses between myself and Dee, um, mm. because. You know, Dee wants to maximise our time there and wants to, you know, deliver as best a job as you possibly can. But I have to actually physically get it done. So I have to work out my... So you're saying she's asleep with the eye mask on and you're... Uh, no, no, in fairness, no, no I'm actually all, scraping the wallpaper as well, yeah, tragically. Yeah, yeah. But what, what's interesting about that is like he'd lead you to believe that it's all me driving the agenda and I've got, I want to do this, that and the other. There's a couple of jobs where I've said... I will get it. I think. I think we have too much on. We'll just do flat pack joinery. There's one job in particular. You know the one I'm yeah, talking about, yeah. right? And I'm saying we'll just do flat pack joinery for the TV. And Peter's like, Ah, no, no. We could do a really nice job. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Finn and Dee Coleman talking to Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And in the morning, Philip Outer Hayes was talking all things spies. The 39 Steps, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or The Hunt for Red October. Are you a fan of intrigue? Love nothing better than getting stuck into a real page turner of a spy thriller? Or perhaps you prefer to watch your favourite secret agents like Carrie Matheson and Homeland, Spooks or the quintessential James Bond on screen. Whatever your preference, we are going to talk about our favourite spies depicted in books and on the big and small screen for the next few minutes. To take us through the various books and films that we should be checking out, I'm joined in studio by Deirdre Malumbi, pop culture and entertainment expert, and from our Waterford studio by librarian Tracy McEnany. Good morning to you both, ladies. Uh, Tracy, first off, what makes a great spy book? Who are your favourite spy characters? Before I begin, I just have to say that if you're looking for spy books, go into your local bookshop or go into your local library and ask for suggestions. But what makes a really good spy book is you have to have great character, 
plot twists, suspense. You need to have a spy with feelings. You have to be able to see why he does what he does. Um, is it for the good for the country? Is it revenge? Has been born into, you know, his mother and father were spies. When you think of spies, you all always think of the ultimate spy which is James Bond now he's gorgeous he's intelligent a bit like yourself a charmer he's able to get out of situations of danger but he's believable and there's always a good cat and mouse between the Russians the Americans and the British but today actually marks the 70th anniversary of Ian Fleming's first uh, Bond book which was Casino Royale I'm surprised to hear you praise them this way because I have to say I read one of them about six, seven years ago now for the first time. I don't think that, I didn't think that they had stood the test of time very well. Well, other authors now are writing them. You know that it's like Anthony Horowitz have written one. Mm -hmm. You've got William Boyd, Jeffrey Deaver, Sebastian Fox. But we are having younger people now coming to read those books. And when I say younger people, I'm talking like 12 years of age. And they are having another a new James Bond book out and it's by Charlie Higson is going to write this and he is the author of the Young Bond uh, series that they do for young adults and it's also to celebrate the coronation of King Charles III and that will go like hotcakes in Waterford Libraries. I'm sure it will but the Ian Fleming originals my God, the misogyny drips off the page. Ah, look, you, we just have to take them for what they are. Um, I would have grown up with... James Bond spy films and I absolutely love them and I've grown up into a balanced human being and have, <laughs> you know and only have one man in my life so uh, I just I just enjoy the James Bond and I just enjoy books for what they are a fiction a bit of escapism okay and uh, something it's just something to enjoy Deirdre Malumba you've seen all the films has it turned you into a homicidal serial womanizer <laughs> You know, it's funny, I actually can't watch the older James Bond movies. I find them so cringy and uncomfortable. And look, there are problematic elements of Bond. I don't think that we can shy away from that. It's been talked about extensively at this point. Uh, when you look at those old James Bond movies, there are examples of sexual harassment, assault, racism, homophobia and toxic masculinity throughout those um, old movies. So in They're my also opinion, inexcusably anyway, cheesy an awful yeah. lot of them. And even the Irish Bond, Pierce Brosnan, to my mind, only had one good film, Goldeneye. Goldeneye the yeah. rest of them were pretty heavy on the fromage. See, I don't mind the Pierce Brosnan ones as much because I think that you can kind of embrace the camp nature of them. And I think, you know, for all of the, you know, complaints that are held against him, I think that Daniel Craig does not get enough credit for what he did in terms of that character, in terms of reinventing him. He has left quite a legacy and I think it's going to be a really tough job to follow him. Like for my money, Casino Royale and Skyfall are the best Bond movies. Mm -hmm. They got such high praise among critics. They were huge box office successes. Deirdre Malambi and Tracy McEnany on the Today programme with Philip Boucher Hayes. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.